Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. Oh boy, do we have a treat for you this time on OTP. I know I say that quite often, but why? You just got to trust me on this one. Now, if you don't know the name Bob Knowles, don't skip. You know, one of the things that really can hinder podcasts in exposing stories is familiarity. I mean, I fall victim to it too. Sometimes I'll, I'll look and I'll see, and if it's not a guest that I know about, then um, I'm less apt to listen to it, which is unfortunate, especially in, in a case like this. Now, this story has everything to do with main racing, but much like a Lomer Pelletier, or let's take Goodwin Hannaford, for example, the story veers away from racing. And we often get into what makes the human being tick and how they were successful in other facets of life, which are which are quite fascinating. For example, Bob Knowles, known most for taking over Unity Raceway from his father in 1960. Now, when you think Unity, you think Ralph Nason. He has a lot to do with it, too. But before Ralph, there was the Knowles family. Now, Bob didn't make his fortune in racing. He eventually became a huge player in the X-Ray game. And, man, I mean, I, I had no idea the level that guy was involved with so many other businesses. I say was. Still is today. 85 years old. And I couldn't do this one without the, uh, without the leadership of Stephanie Burgess, who highly suggested we get Bob Knowles and actually set up the interview uh, that you're about to hear. And then, of course, there's Pete Silva. Welcome back, Pete, who absolutely brings the heat on this one. And some of my favorite parts of this episode was just sitting back in in Bob's house and just listening. We'll learn how a American, I mean, a major moment in American history is tied to Unity Raceway and, and still is today. The fact that cars used to leave the racetrack and it was routine for them to end up on Route 139. And just some, you know, some cool stories, some great main stories. That's another thing about this podcast is, yes, it's a racing podcast, but you get a lot of main history. And it isn't possible without the Patreon, so thank you so much for becoming a Patreon member and contributing that way. Patreon.com slash Open Trailer Podcast. Of course, this is a product of Main Vintage Race Car Association. For less than $2 a month, you can subscribe to us, MainVintageRace.org. If you have no idea who Bob Knowles is, I applaud you for listening. Trust me, you're not going to want your money back after this one. Matter of fact, I bet you can't wait for stage number two. Let's get to it. Stage one of Bob Knowles on Open Trailer Podcast. So I was in single digits age-wise when I started going, and I used to tell Bob, remember... Back then, it was all Sunday afternoon racing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't any night stuff, or at least I don't remember a lot of it in the early years. That's right. But I can remember the covered grandstands, and it was every kid's dream to go in there because there were pitches from one end to the other, whether it was a still car or a wreck or something. And his father, Bob Ed, 
to his credit, every Sunday we came in there as a bunch of kids. We all got to know each other, and he would always come in there every Sunday morning and spend time with us, go over the pitches, and explain what was going on. Really? And, yeah, it was pretty. When you're a kid and you really like the racing deal, of course, our father, the people I were hanging around with at the time, a lot of their fathers raced too or were involved. And so it just, it was really good for us. It was nice. It was a neat deal, especially when you think about. Going back and think about those times now, that was special. Now, we mentioned uh, Ed Knowles, who's Bob's father, and, and, and brought racing to Unity. But as I understand it, racing wasn't meant to be in Unity in the first place. The land was, was supposed to be further southern Maine. Exit 8 in Portland, the old, where the Holiday Inn is now, Howard Johnson's. And, and that never came to fruition. Is there a reason why? Yeah, Jim O'Connell opened up Beach Ridge. This was right around the same time, 1948. Yeah. And I know the cars that came to Unity were from the ridge. Oh, I can remember the King Cole car and stuff like that, because I saw them when they came in. But as far as racing, I never watched much racing. Really? So where was the family living at this point? Where was your family based out of? I lived in Highland, Maine with my grandparents. Mm. My dad lived in Portland. He had Riverside Dance Hall there. Right, because he was he was like the entertainment guy. He was a promoter. Uh, so you're living in Harlan, Maine. Racing comes to Unity. Why, why does it come to Unity uh, out of all the other places? Well, I asked my father that one time. And he said, put 50 cents on the map, state of Maine map. And it covers Augusta, Skowhegan, uh, Pittsfield, Waterville. Right around the loop, you know, Bangor, Belfast. And he was right, because it's country people then were the ones that were going to auto racing. It wasn't the guy from Portland, except, you know, it was the guy from Standish and Gorham. So, Bob, you mentioned uh, racing coming to Unity, and you didn't see much of it, which Mm -hmm. blows my mind. What, What did you do at the racetrack? I sold tickets to get in. And they were outside of the road then. It wasn't, well, you, you drove in with your car and, you know, and they had two people up front, you know, paying the legitimate, and then there was half a dozen so in the trunk. <laughs> Did you guys ever do trunk checks? No. Really? <laughs> if I were you, I would have. Well, I changed it all around when yeah. I got there. <laughs> How old were you then when this was... Getting in at th- that point, starting to do this. Oh, probably 14, 15, yeah. 16. Wow. And you mentioned that you hadn't watched racing. Um, were you interested in it at all? Well, I became interested in it with my friend Jim Langan from Baltimore. Jim was, uh, well, he, st- he made his career at Johns Hopkins is where I went to school also. But he was a nuclear tech and he was a leader in nuclear. He used to put on seminars at, with uh, with a group that came up from Hopkins every summer at Kobe, and then they'd come over to the races afterwards and would have lunch at the house and stuff and like that. Bob, were you born in Maine? Yes, Winslow. So you're from Winslow. You you spend your time in Harlan. You work at Unity. Was going to university the first time you'd really been out of the state? No, I had a doctor friend that, that I was living across from my grandmother. I was a, a ward of the state for my brother and I. Mm. And I lived in Oakland for a while. 
And anyway, they were going to get this money out of my father. And of course, it didn't work that way. So they ended up putting my brother and I in a home in the state. And uh, my grandmother and an aunt got us out. And my grandmother, Lynn, was living here. Well, we ended up across the street from a doctor in Hatland. And he was, uh, well, he helped a lot of people, including myself and my brother and well, probably another dozen people in all. Would you say this doctor was um, definitely definitely was a father figure in your life, but did he, he help you out more than your father in your education? Well, yes, in a sense. Uh, and we did that, and I came home. And I always had to work. I mean, my I bought my own bicycle, my own clothes and stuff. My grandmother was a nice lady. Then I wanted a car, which I couldn't have unless, I, unless she signed for it because I was underage. So I ended up with a 49 Ford, and it was 50, well, 51, I guess. And I did two years at MCI with that. And I had to sell that to go to Hopkins on. You sold your car so you could go to college? Well, Hopkins. Hopkins, okay. Yeah, I was an x-ray man. What was that college experience like to to meet people from all over um, for the first time? The the best time of my life, really, in a sense. I mean, I I met people from everywhere. And, you know, I had a... Well, anyway, after being there a while, I can remember I was going to run out of money because the car only brought me, you know, twelve hundred dollars. Time you buy your books, your uniforms, and 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 the tax always had to pay for that, meals and stuff. And so I was running out of money. And the word that Dick Olden, the director of the school, which is a nice man and a smart man, uh, he said nobody works till the first year is over. Well, he caught me in the library, film library, working one night. Hmm. See you in the morning with that. Well, when he walked down the hallway to Johns Hopkins, his lab coat was right out straight, you know, because he was that kind of a guy. And he said, Bob, I saw you in there, the library, working. He says, you know the rules. I says, yeah. So I says, I guess I better go home now, right? He says, that bad, right? And I said, yes. He says, keep working. So he gave me my break. Anyway, we left. I stayed at Hopkins for a few years. I was on their staff, as they say, the faculty at Hopkins. And this Jim Langan, my friend that taught me more about racing, in a sense, going like Baltimore, you had a little... I called it a ball field. Mm. I remember a Roberts was a key guy there. We'd sat in like in a grandstand of a of a school, you know, because it was like a school park. Are you talking about the old wooden track down there? No, no. just the uh, dirt in the infield, like a ball field. Okay. That's how, how small it was and stuff. But this Roberts, you know, he seemed to go through them just like that. But anyway. Mm. Then down the road further was a NASCAR track there. Not, well, I can't think of the town there now, but on the way into Washington, Pete. Anyway, it was that one. Manassas, Virginia. We'd go down to uh, 
Marlboro, Maine, out of Maryland. And Roger Ward would be down there practicing. And then up to Williams Grove, where I met, well, I didn't meet him then. It was Lee Petty came there one day. He ran. That was when they towed the cars behind cars. The, uh, it would be like 1954, I would say. And how, did you know of Lee Petty? Like, well, did his reputation precede him? Yes. Okay. And and of course he was a you know he was a good man and and uh, I'm sure that Richard was in the car with him then but he was a kid then and then they went to Islip, Long Island with the Saturday night before which is a NASCAR track at the time and then at Williams Grove the next Sunday Jim and I were up there and they said well Lee Petty's a do-in but he's been held up a little bit on the car problems and and so they voted like and we the fans wanted him so in comes Lee Petty with I think he had a 54 Oldsmobile dragging a 54 behind and he took and uh, uh, made a couple laps and said let's go racing people of course Lee won the race and that was my first you know, race in stock cars because there were sprint cars at most of the other places. Yeah, because originally, if I understand this correct, Pete, midget cars were the, the original draw to racing in Maine, at least up here. They said they wanted to bring midget racing. That would have been southern part of Maine, maybe? That's what father wanted to do. Your father did. Yeah. But you but, wanted stock cars. Well, I know. I didn't, I didn't know what they were. <laughs> <laughs> but, let me but, jump in here. I understand your father and the silver dollar deal of the quarter and, and thinking Unity was a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Was that already there as a horse track with the covered grandstand? Is that yes. why you picked that spot? Yes. Okay. And he had a, a chap by the name of Stone, who was a realtor in Pittsfield, uh, Maine. And he bought the track from Ed McAtee, McAfee, up in Plymouth, Maine. He was a huntsman. Now, if you look at some of the old pictures, like on off in one corner, there were stables there. I can remember that, seeing that. And then down in the big barn, down at the end of number four corner, there was a barn there, which is which is where McAtee, I think it is. Mm. He had that for his for his horses, and my father bought it from him, but he forgot to pay him until I took it <laughs> over, I think. And, and I think Regina had to go up and get a deed and pay him off or something. But that was my father. So at this time, were you working the carnival also with him, or was that too early? Well, I didn't work then, no. He, I I do remember coming home in, like, in 54, as I started to say earlier. We had a Irish Horan a thrill show in the thrill show at the time. The cars. Yes, yeah. and uh, Irish was the uh, announcer for Indianapolis Speedway at the time, and he uh, we had a big cannon that he had. He shot a, a little Dodge Wayfarer convertible out of it. We got he pictures. shot a car out of a cannon. Yeah. We have the, the club has pictures that you and Ray Jean gave us of that cannon with cars coming out of it. Car coming out of yeah. it, 
And of course, it was supposed to have been set up in the middle front of the grandstand. But at that season, we had a wet season. It had raced. And unity down in that area is all water. Like I, when I built a mobile home park across the street there. Hell, I had enough water there to supply unity and help in every round of car around, <laughs> town around here. And I, I remember working all night long with Randy Reynolds as a father and stuff, hauling gravel, trying to get that cannon so they dared to put it up there because it was a heavy thing. You know? Yeah, I bet. So, but we did, we couldn't do it, so we had to take it down off in the old number four corner, uh, number two corner, really. Yeah. And then they shot it, but you know, it was half a mile away, you know. So, yeah. I, I can remember the spectator parking lot back then when it rained. Of course, they couldn't get out to go home. It was so, just, you just sunk in, everybody was stuck. Is that why Unity started later on in the year than other racetracks? Because it just had to, the ground was so saturated? No, my father wasn't home from Florida. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. When I took it over back in 1960, I opened up, as I told Pete a long time ago, I had four cars there. Right, Joe? We had four cars for the for the show that day. And that wasn't many cars. For the whole show? Yes. Jeez. And thank God I had my father there on the mic because he was a good mic man. And he said, folks, I know they're building cars all over heck for these people now. And next week, I don't know how many we got, but we got probably 12, 15 and like that because my father, see, didn't open up early, but... And then he stayed late at Snowfall. Well, I didn't like this program at all, so I changed it. Third week in May to the third week in September. Now, I think everybody needs to know, didn't your father pay somebody to build some cars to yes. get the car count up? Yep. In the beginning days, we had a, I had a cousin, Bub Knowles, and he was from Scowigan. And he, my father paid him $20 a car to build, have cars built. But he ended up getting, he built like Roger, you know, he had Roger Laney, Chet yeah. Kinney, uh, Frankie Tuttle, all those Pitchfield guys, Cerosis, and and my father said he got more money out of Unity than he did for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you come back from John Hopkins and you're taking over the racetrack and you didn't like the schedule. What was it about the sweet spot of early May to, was it September or October? that you decided to run. Why did you change the schedule? Because I thought that was when the racing should be done instead of, did, you know, in, in the season, half the season. You know, it's all, to me, you opened up in May. Now, I've opened up in April. I tried to watch the calendar. and my parking lot was good, I would try to get the early bird race in. One, then I'd still open the third week in May. Didn't you try to open before everybody else to attract yes. the car count if you yes. were already racing yeah. before them? I, I tried to open one race o- open early. I can remember Easter one year. Yeah. It was beautiful. The sun was, the place was mobbed. Yeah. So that was really early. And, yeah. and, uh, and Bob, how old are you at this point when you're taking over as a promoter? <laughs> 
25. So you're 25 years old, which I think is pretty important context to these radical changes to, uh, you know, a place that already has a lot of success. But you came in from John Hopkins and had all these different ideas. And did you come up with them on your own or is that through your experience at the, at, uh, with your friends? Well, my friends. But then I used to go to a workshop in Daytona. And a guy by the name of uh, Hugh Drury, would you believe he was a banker? But he owned Rockford Speedway outside of Chicago. One of the best promoters I ever worked with. As a matter of fact, I even got Cal Reynolds to go with me one time when he had uh, Beach Ridge there. Mm. And who I used to set with was Dale Jarrett's father, Neil Ned uh, Jarrett. Yeah. Ned Jarrett, rather. It, it sometimes becomes cartoonish that, you know, it's still the South versus the North. Pete, you experienced that as a driver, but that was a real thing. So you're a promoter from the North going South, and how were you treated by guys like Ned Jarrett and the NASCAR people? Fine. Ned was a nice guy, mm. just like he was when his son was winning his first race there. Mm. with. Uh, you beat Dale Earnhardt. Yeah, and Gibbs, yeah, yeah. Joe Gibbs. I'd like to back up just a little bit sure. for a second. The transition from Ed Knowles to Bob Knowles, what was that? What what started that, made that happen? Were you just, he was ready to get away from it? Yes, I understand that Joe told me here the other day, and I didn't realize it. Ed was ready to throw in the towel. I guess he didn't want to do it anymore. If you didn't take it over. Yeah. And I immediately wanted to change this. I, w- I became a builder, as I thought. And I ended up, uh, I think the first thing I did was put chain link up. Because the, the, the law in the state of Maine then was four feet of hog wire. If you came down at Unity in the beginning days, you came right down in front of the grand, grandstand. And did you try to build grandstands? Not really. I no. I had some bleachers that my father wanted me to. Well, the bleachers were rotten, and I had a Uber grader, and I hooked onto them, and they collapsed. It's a good thing I didn't try to do this season. Wow. And anyway, he'd bought some other, some old bleachers somewhere else out of Belfast. So you learned that you could buy them. Well, I my father told me, Big Ed, there, told me to go up to. Stickney, New Brunswick, and get some lumber and do the same thing again that he'd done. And I went down to, oh, I was, well, we're, I was in Portland quite a bit in the young, when I first came back because, well, we had to dance all at Riverside and then we had a, a beer place up in Birdland across from Simpsons on Warren Avenue. And, the, and it was a very successful place, but... Uh, so I was in Portland, you know, three, four days a week. And I went over, I used to like Jim O'Connell mm-hmm. from the Ridge. And I went over to see Jim. And and I told Jim, I said, Ed told me to go up to Stickney last week, and I did. And he said, boy, oh boy, he says, you go to school, you don't learn anything. <laughs> and, and this is he, Jim saying this to you? Yeah. Okay. I said, what the hell are you talking about, Jim? He said, Bob, he says, go down to Berwick, Hussey Manufacturing, buy the seats, the guaranteed 40 years anyway. And so I did. I bought the first group, brought them in, set them up. 
And then it started growing a little bit further, you know, and mm. so I added, well, the second batch I bought were from the Kennedy uh, inauguration in D.C. Are those stands still at Unity today? Yes. So if you sit in the stands at Unity, you will sit in the same stands at the inauguration of John F. Kennedy? Well, some of them, uh, some of them would be. Wow. And of course, never thought of it like that. That's pretty. That's 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 forget racing history. That's American yeah. history. Yes. Yeah. And of course, Hazy used to lease in the seats along the streets there in Pennsylvania Avenue. And a lot of those, you know, how the seats are there. Well, Hazy makes seats. And they brought them back and probably gave me fifty cents more off seat off something like that. But I'm sure they got paid well for them going to Washington. Right. Trailer loads of them. What you know, we're talking about all these changes. What year was the transition from from Ed to you? I'd say right after I got here, sixty. Sixty. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was sixty, but you know, it kind of when I married my wife, my dear wife, sixty-one years, he ended up kind of disowning me. <laughs> probably had a lot of opportunities to do that didn't yeah, she? Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway I what, what was she interested in well she was a hard working lady had a daughter here of ginger mm. and she had to support her there was nothing there to and her folks were well probably a little better off than mine even big Ed, but they were workers Honest workers didn't have to rob banks to <laughs> get their money. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, it was like that. They, uh, she was cooking for a school lunch program, boys camp in the summers, and hostess at the Lance House in Pittsfield. And I came along. How did you guys meet? I came back to Maine to actually build a motel at Exit 8 where the uh, Howard Johnson is. But my father knew I couldn't raise any money. This and is before the racetrack? Yes. Okay. So he ended up giving me the racetrack. Then I had a little skating rink in Atlanta as well. And then I ended up, uh, I'm having dinner with my grandmother. And she had this big house up there, just her and I. And then comes this Ray Jean, who I knew all my life. But, I mean, most of my life. And anyway, she says, I understand you're going to take your mother, your grandmother to Florida. I says, I'm thinking of it. Well, she said, if, if you could do, if you go, would you take mine and me and Ginger? And she said, I'd share expenses with you. And I said, well, if the car's going, you don't need to share any expenses with her. Well, I decided to go. But she ended up driving with her boyfriend as far as New Jersey. I mean, she had her own boyfriend? Yes. Okay. And and I did not have any idea of getting married with Regine, I'll tell you this. Mm. And about the, well, we got there and my father had a place for the ladies this day. And he had his little house up there in Linda Lane there in West Palm. And, and about the third day, Ray Jean arrives. Now, I had a, 
what I call a pretty sharp little 59 Chevrolet convertible, you know, white top, red interior. And it was a good machine. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had given that to Ray Jean when we got there so they'd have a vehicle because my dad had his old Cadillacs and stuff. Anyway, we, uh, she comes hustling up there one noon. Bob, I'd like to go to dinner tonight. I said, no problem. You got the car. Well, she has a boyfriend, right? You're not going to tra- trample on that territory, <laughs> right? Well, well, <laughs> you know, the boyfriend, he stayed in New Jersey. You know, uh, you know he was in New Jersey when uh, that's where, that's why I picked her up in New Jersey. He lived yeah. in Staten Island. I guess he was a counselor over the, one of the boys' camps. And he was going home to teach, I guess. I don't know, to school. And so anyway, I looked at her, and she's looking at me, you dumbass. I mean, dumb fool. No, no, you can swear. That's not, yeah. Dumbass is like the most tame thing that anybody in this town has said on the podcast. you got to remember, he interviewed your buddy down the road. And you. <laughs> and what? And you. <laughs> I must have a, have a void here, memory-wise. Yeah. Anyway. I said, you mean you want me to take you to dinner? And she said, yes. So uh, my dad always had a knack for picking up places for good food. So I went up on the Dixie Highway. With, had been with, I think maybe Ray Jean had been there with him and all four or five of us had been there for dinner this one night called The Spot, S-P-O-T. And so I said, well, I guess it's okay to take her there then, right, for dinner which I did and then I the golf pro that was a friend of my dad's there I said Ned I said where should I take Regine after that well he says there's a restaurant there's a place over in West Palm Lake uh, yeah Palm Beach he says it's called the roof where the roof opens up and you dance under the roof and uh, open sky and so I did that you shot for the moon that's right <laughs> yeah you did and, and anyway she uh, I ended up uh, getting ready to go to Maine you know because I had the skating rink and we got as far as Yulee, Florida that night right on the Georgia line there and the next day going up to Maine I got uh, ran into snow in South Carolina and from there I had snow all the way and it got got kicked off in Petersburg, Virginia got through no traffic at all because everybody was in motels which I couldn't find one and nobody has snow tires I mean this is 1955 technology on back roads you don't have an interstate system no and uh but I did have Ginger in the back with her books <laughs> and, and her yeah. oranges and all, and, it, and the convertibles were, you know, a little heavier on the rear. I had street tires, and I got uh, kicked off the uh, Petersburg. I did get kicked off the Mass Pike. That was good, good. And I took Route 20 a couple across. I'd been used to that a long time ago when I was going back and forth to Hopkins and stuff. Well, anyway... Uh, I had the car had been iced up so bad that we stopped in Thelma for a little bit, let it iced off. And and I got back to Hartland that night, and Ray Jean offered, well, my grandmother had asked me, asked Ray Jean if 
could you see that Bobby gets a little meal every now and then? And anyway, she uh, she offered to uh, give me a meal if I that night, you know. And so anyway, I went over to the rink, and Roger and her brother and my friend was running the rink for me. And I said, Roger, my eyes are like this. I said, Would you uh, stay here tonight and run the rink? And he said he agreed to. And anyway, I went back over to Ray Jean's, and then I went up to my grandmother's house all by myself. <laughs> and then before I knew, we'd picked up this pretty good friendship. Mm. And I married her in June 18th of 1960. And we had 61 great years. What an amazing partnership, and she was a key in, in unity as well. I mean, she was right there by your side. Oh, yeah. Everything we ever did, we did it together. I don't ever remember going to the racetrack and not seeing Ray Jean, ever, mm. back in that era. Yeah, and, you know, well, because, you know, I'd been dating a lot of girls from Hopkins and like that, but yeah. I found a real girl there in Ray Jean. So I'm trying to put the uh, I'm trying to put the the calendar together. Did you say you were married on July 18th, 1960? Yeah. Okay. So you took over management in 1960. Did you have to miss a race day for your wedding? No. No. <laughs> well, I was probably well more like the end of '60 when I actually took it over because I am I am uh, when Ed got. P.O.'d at me there for marrying Ray Jean. Uh, I went fishing. I've uh, never been fishing in my life, but some of the people that I, Ray Jean had chummed around with and stuff, we went up to, up on the Fox and 201, is it, towards mm-hmm. Quebec yeah. there. And I remember carrying her on my back, cause <laughs> and she was a happy camper there, I guess, because... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, then then I got married with the minister that we had in the church in Hatton there, Wilton, Maine. And, of course, along the way here, I always had my dog, Rinkin. The father of X-Ray was X-Ray, was Rinkin. And so my first boxer was called Rinkin. Wherever I went, the dog was with me. As a matter of fact, the dog went with us on our first night up together. Wow. (laughs) It's good to have a chaperone. <laughs> so you mentioned the X-ray uh, business as well. Now you're you're developing, um, being a promoter at Unity Raceway, but that isn't really what you took away from college. Uh, tell me about what your vocation was and, and what you wanted to do in life. Where does the X-ray part of your life come in? Well, I was getting to hate Unity. It was because I had Unity. I built Spud. And had Speedway '95, and I can remember very much. I think it was in '73, '74, somewhere in there. I started Main X-ray with sold less than a thousand dollars worth of film the first year. Now the reason I got into it is some of the chaps that I'd gone to school with at Hopkins came, became commercial guys. And they were, they, they, the guys that came to see me were from GAF, 
So they were uh, commercial equipment is what you're saying? Well, commercial. In other words, if you went, if you didn't stay in the field and you sold x-ray film or equipment and bariums and all that stuff and associated with an x-ray department, lead, and like the Tony there, Strangy from Boston, you either bought his lead or you're going to be dead. It's just, this was his motto. Well, there you go. <laughs> By my lead, all you're dead, you know. Wow, it rhymes, <laughs> right? What's wrong with that? And I did a lot of lead business with Tony. Mm. <laughs> and anyway, we, uh, we the, the guys came the first year and I turned them down because I didn't think I could sell. Then they came back the second year. And they said, Bob, we're going to give you an offer that you can't refuse. And they, evidently they did because <laughs> I took their offer and I, and I ran with it. As I said, the first year was, you know, I, after the racing season I started out and I picked up the smallest size film there was except for dental film and like that, 8 by 10s. And uh, ended up uh, selling two boxes to St. Joseph's Hospital in, in Bangor. And I grew that from Bangor to Lincoln. What was it like to make that first sale? Well, it was good because, you know, it was a $1,000 sale, you know, it's just under. And they were kicking me back 10%, so I made $100 extra that day. The way I'm listening to you now is you, you turned down the sales thing because you, you thought you couldn't do it. And then you made that first sale. Like, what was, do, you, do you remember what that day was like and how you felt? Well, pretty damn good. Mm. <laughs> I from Picker X-Ray came down and said, Who are you? I'm Bob Knowles. What are you going to do? Sell a little X-Ray film. You won't be around long. And and that was my in the in you know my education for getting yeah, in. Your but he he helped me out a lot. I I thought because he made me feel that hey I got to show them I'm a, I'm better. And would you believe I used to he worked for me for years and I had to fire him twice one day because in one day yes because I wouldn't do it the first day. Okay. I came back to the office and my daughter says, "Well, did you do your job?" And I said, no, I couldn't get your ass in the car and go back to Ginger, Portland. you said that? No. no. Not that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just what she meant. Right. I wasn't good at firing people. Well, I, there's something that I picked up on just listening to that, that answer is that you, you found your success by proving to others what they thought you couldn't do. Do you think some of that translated to your racetrack promotion? Probably. Absolutely. Because, you know, I ended up, uh, well, I did the seats. Well, I did the chain link first. And then the hot top in 65. You ran four years on the dirt. Yeah. And, and explain the numbers that well, convinced you to go to asphalt. Well, there was two, three reasons. There was two, three reasons I went to asphalt. One of them was that I had tried this new surface that was going to be dustless. Well, it was a material that the Scott paper had and Drummond's uh, trucking, hauling it, the camp roads. 
had the loaded to it, you know, and like that. But I said, oh, well, we got to try it. Well, the place blew up at Unity that day. And I sent Ray Jean, had to be 64, and I asked her to go to the fire department and get me some help because I couldn't pump enough water down the stream down behind the racetrack, you know, to keep the dust down. Is this bunker sea oil? No, this is just waste oil from from the deal. Mm. But I used to use bunker sea afterwards. Hot to come in. Mm. Six cents a gallon from Sprague's out of Sisport there. And how did that work? How did that, uh, were you able to achieve that dustless racetrack? No. <laughs> Never. I I didn't have any money, but Ray Jean came back, and during the night she kind of broke down and said, you know, I had a little problem today with the fire department. Max was fine and all this, but we had one guy there that said, what do we owe the Knowles's? And so she told me that, and I said, well, don't don't get upset. I'll take care of it. So I went to my friend, Lawrence Springer, so I went into Fairfield at the office at Warren Brothers then, and I said, Lawrence, here's what I spent for oil. This is what I spent for clay. And now I don't have a nickel, but I said, I'll pay you. And I said, give me three payments, and I did it. And I paid him off early because the dust was not there and the people were there. And then I realized what we had going there, so I... I kept on going with the lights, the asphalt, and changed everything around. Like I can remember, like just a simple thing like a fryer Ray Jean and I took a couple of the old ones, took them down to oh, the fryer company there, down in Concord, New Hampshire. And the guy, when I got talking to him in there, he says, you know, what you're spending on rebuilding these, you could buy two new ones would be three times faster. Well, I says, why am I doing this? He says, because you asked me to do it. <laughs> Pitco was the name, Pitco Filator. So anyway, we ended up buying new ones, and it was so much easier. So was Unity running during the daytime uh, until, like, when did it change to night? Uh, nighttime facility? Well, I was going to say about 67, somewhere in there. So it happened under your clock? Oh, yeah. Why change to, to nighttime? What was the lure? Well, I just thought there was better people, the more people there that could do it. Now, my father didn't agree with me, but he didn't agree with too much I did anyway. But Well, there's the expense of lighting the track. Yeah, but that was, that was you know, nothing compared to the rewards that I got from it. Hmm. And then my father's comment was, what are the island people going to do? Meaning Vinyl Haven and all that. Oh, right. You know, and I said, all three of them? <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, you know, and he'd say, yeah. I said, they can get a motel and stay over or whatever they want to do. Because then we added more seats and all that stuff. It's because uh, you bring up the Vinyl Haven thing, and, and this podcast goes all over the world, even though it's, it's Maine-centric. So as I would understand it, the ferry only operates, it's not a 24-hour ferry. It only operates certain times of the day. Right. So they couldn't they couldn't just go for a night race and then go home. You know, I used to have a, a customer from Southwest Harbor, which gets fogged in a lot. And every night 
you know, in the daytime. He'd call me every afternoon on Saturday or something. Is it raining in Unity, Bob? No, it isn't. Are you sure? <laughs> and I say, yes, I'm not. It's like a it. Facebook weather report. <laughs> <laughs> and he, well, he owned a little mall. Well, he had the Ford dealership there in Southwest. It became a mall. And then when he got married, would you believe he had his night at the races before he went on for his honeymoon? <laughs> I believe it. So you paved the track for half of what it cost you to keep it oiled the previous year, didn't you, or something like that? Well, it only cost me 18000 to do that, but it cost me 12000 to do the clay and okay, oil. Okay, I misunderstood that. Well, it's a little more, but I didn't have a week, you know, three, four days of Regine spraying oil all over me with an oil truck. That must have made her happy. And then, you know, then I had three days to promote better than... And go to the Lions Club and stuff like that, promoting. So, so, so now you've got this asphalt down, and you decide to start what it had been called a street stock division, yes, or whatever it was, the one night opening, the, yeah. the coming out party for that division mm-hmm. had one car. you got to tell that story. Well, anyway, we we were getting down in cars. I can't remember why, I guess... The drivers wanted to spend more money, and I didn't. But anyway, had the, we advertised a real street car. Okay. And would you believe we had one car show up? Isn't the guy's name is Bruce Shaw? And Bruce is a big guy. But and they came to me and they said, "What are we going to do?" I said, "You're going to put on a race." And and of course. Joe was one of them, Joe Lewis. and Was George Hale the announcer then? Yes, and okay. I told George, I said, you're going to make a damn race out of this, George, in which he did. In the next week, what do we have, about 12, Joe? Picked up quick. Yeah, yeah, like we had to have two features. By um, the end of the month? Yeah, yep. but you know what? I messed up on that. I should have run the third race out of them, took 10 out of each one to, and made the real... Yeah, I got thinking about that in the other days. That's funny. You think about this all these decades yeah. later. Yeah. You hit on George Hale, who uh, you know, synonymous with the Unity Raceway and, and broadcasting in Maine. How key was he to the success of uh, the racetrack under you? Well, I was fortunate. We had some pretty good announcers there, mm-hmm. but George, oh, okay, he became a very personal one. As a matter of fact, I had lunch with George just the other day, and he's coming to the. Yeah. He was popular with the drivers, too. Yeah. I think everybody and, liked and, him. Yeah, and he was a good mite man. I mean, on the street, on the on the track <clears throat> afterwards and stuff like that. People liked George. Mm. And I remember I had to work hard to get him to take come to Unity and stuff, just like Bud Levitt. Uh, <laughs> Bud Levitt didn't like auto racing, but every now and then he'd sit in the grandstand. And then there was Hado Durrell from the Sentinel. I remember him. Hado Durrell was the sports announcer. But How was racing perceived by mainstream sports writers back then? Not very well. No. You know, like, uh, well, like in the Sentinel, which is, which is, you know, my primary area, I thought, Waterville and Skowigan and like that. The, uh, Hado Durrell, the announcer. No, he had Lee Allen, uh, not the announcer, but the, 
the uh, sports writer. But Lee was, he loved the horses. And I used to rib him a little bit. I says, you're in a dying business. And of course, without the casinos, they would have been gone now. But mm. uh, but then uh, Hado Durrell said, Bob, he says, I don't like what you do, but you're the biggest thing in central Maine. You bring it, we'll print it. Wow. And that's what, that's what we had for... Well, you did well with that. And when Stan came back from his southern tour, and then Ralph got the kit car... We talking about Stan Reserve? Yes. Okay. Now we've, we've got a intense rivalry which played in to the efforts you put into media newspaper any kind of advertisement you played that really well I think that really brought a lot of attention to the racetrack racing in general I, I still and I think they should now and then I mean they should have so much budgeted for yeah you know they think the Facebook and but this hey until Stephanie got me going on it I would never have known what the hell Facebook was yeah. I think it was good for you to see how many people still cared about the past and the history of Unity. Well, You I, must have been fairly impressed with that once you started I was, seeing it. I mean, I did not realize what we'd done to the people, meaning it was a function that Saturday night was great. And I had, like, you know, I always said I did not do it alone. I had the Joes and the Steve Ames and the gingers and a lot of right. constant people stayed there a long time when yes, I was there there was not a lot of change yeah there was not an overnight deal so what was the uh, what was your slogan back in the day I heard you had a pretty famous slogan on uh, on how the facility was going to run well my idea was people first spectators first drivers second if there was anything left over for Bob and Reggie and ginger <laughs> but we also had a slogan that was unity raceway speed is for the raceway not the highway i remember that speaking of the highway um we're gonna jump back a little bit in the early days of unity the cars would overshoot the turn and end up on to 139 yes uh tell me i can only imagine this in my head and it looks like a looney tunes cartoon what were some of the like how did how did you stop that from happening? Put up the fencing. <laughs> yeah. The fencing that's there today, because the yeah. track is, it was in that configuration when that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember that. I remember my father doing it yeah. and coming back in through the pit area. So, yeah, I was going to say, you leave the racetrack, are you done for the day? No, no. No. Yeah, not if you didn't. You know, Depends how you land. That's pretty incredible stuff. And in stage number two, we talk about how Bob made a deal with the king himself. And we said, hell, we might as well go in because like that. So the next morning we go out to the track and Richard said, hey, where were you? I was waiting on you. So Richard Petty was waiting on you for hours. Yeah. Cause, and you didn't think he was going to show up. That's right. And I said to him, I said, well, you blew a motor. He says, I just drive him, I don't fix him. <laughs> <laughs> next time out on Open Trailer Podcast. I'm Andy Austin. Talk to you next time.